I used to do lots of things. Okay, welcome everyone to episode 40 of the Reckless Musecast. I am uh, Ben D'Alessio, your host flying solo today. This is the communist and or fascist takeover of the podcast. I'm not sure which one I want to go with yet. Uh, Joe will not be joining us as he has been fired or is dead. Um, I will get back to you on that. So today we're going to talk about, or I'm going to talk about uh, satire, a topic that's near and dear to my heart. I'm going to read one of my favorite pieces of satire uh, ever, which is Jonathan Swift's A Modest Proposal. I'm not going to read uh, every word of it. I, I, I've excised some of it to um, for brevity's sake, but it really is just a, a genius uh, work of satirical writing. I'm also going to touch on a, a um, piece from the New York Times back in 2019, uh, the, those simpler times, and um, kind of wrap it up with the Babylon Bee, and uh, some other uh, pieces of satire uh, in our culture and why it's important and why some of it is, uh, I don't know if it's dying or changing, however you wanna put it, uh, it's important is, is really the, the crux of today's episode, um, why we need it and um, how, how important it is to culture. So I, I usually don't do this. I usually don't like to read word for word, but I think Jonathan Swift's uh, a modest proposal deserves it. Again, besides the paragraphs that I've cut out for some context, um, this was written in 1729, which a lot of times when you read anything from from back then, back in the day, uh, it usually is pretty tedious. I never really enjoyed reading uh, old work, even some Shakespeare can be kind of tedious. But I think this really holds up. Um, I would hope that a modest proposal is still taught in schools. Um, it's uh, entertaining and violent, but not graphic. Um, it kind of is just violent enough to get the point, get the point across. It's witty, it's sharp, um, and it's honestly brilliant. Uh, and it's, it's what satire, I don't want to say what it should be used for, but one of like one of the ways that, that satire, satire should be used is to attack a um, a problem, to address a problem, um, pose questions, and, uh, you know, to, to say something that maybe a lot of people are thinking or are observing, but can't put into, into words. Um, again, for context, this was written in 1729 by Jonathan Swift, probably most famously known for, if not this, then Gulliver's Travels. He, uh, Jonathan Swift was a Anglo-Irish writer um, I believe he was Protestant, um, writer, poet, satirist, cleric, all those things, you know, a real Renaissance man at the time. Uh, I think he's writing this from Dublin or he's talking about Dublin. Ireland was part of what was called the kingdom of Ireland, which was basically controlled by the English. Um, and it was very poor and uh, a terrible place to live for the vast majority of people, which was kind of the case in most of the world, uh, especially Europe at this time, but um, especially so uh, in Ireland, especially because the 
Irish being uh, not English and Catholic were really um, uh, looked down upon and subjugated to, uh, I mean, lack of civil rights doesn't really do it, but um, to persecution and neglect. So uh, the, the full title here is Amas Proposal for Preventing the Children of Poor People in Ireland from Being a Burden to Their Parents or Country and for Making Them Beneficial to the Public. I mean, amazing subtitle there. So I'm going to go through here and, and uh, read a, a large chunk of this and uh, give my notes. So <clears throat> it is a melancholy object to those who walk through this great town or travel in the country when they see the streets, the roads and cabin doors crowded with beggars of the female sex, followed by three, four or six children, all in rags and importuning every passenger for an alms. These mothers, instead of being able to work for their honest livelihood, are forced to employ all their time in strolling to beg sustenance for their helpless infants, who as they grow up either turn thieves for want of work or leave their dear native country to fight for the pretender in Spain or sell themselves to the Barbados. I'm not exactly sure what those last two parts mean. Um, I think a lot of Irish were sent to uh, indentured servitude in the Caribbean. Uh, so that might be what that is, pretender in Spain. I'm assuming it's something Catholic. Uh, I, I don't know exactly. I didn't look up the context for that. But again, so here we are. It's kind of painting a pic picture of um, a really uh, destitute city. And again, this is Dublin. So uh, he continues, I think it is agreed by all parties that this prodigious number of children in the arms or on the backs or at the heels of their mothers and frequently of their fathers is in the present deplorable state of the kingdom, a very great additional grievance. And therefore, whoever could find out a fair, cheap and easy method of making these children sound useful members of the Commonwealth will deserve so well of the public as to have this, as to have his statue set up for preserver of the nation. Uh, so again, I like how he starts with, I think it is agreed. Uh, I, it, it's very, he's, he's writing here. And what I love so much about this, part of it is how it's so smug and elitist again on purpose. That's, that, that's uh, the point of it is that he's, um, I think has that very kind of typical liberal feel to it where the elitist knows what's best for uh, the poor. And I think that still um, pervades today. So <clears throat> uh, by my intention is very far, uh, excuse me, but my intention is very far from being confined to provide only for the children of professed beggars. It is of a much greater extent and shall take in the whole number of infants at a certain age who were born of parents in effect as little able to support them as those who demand our charity in the streets. Uh, so it's saying there's greater appeal. This should be looked at as kind of a lower, a lower income, lower middle class, if there even is a middle class. It's not just the beggars. This is for anyone who could kind of, his, his proposal, which is forthcoming, is for anyone who um, might, might find it useful. Uh, probably not the, the wealthy, but it's not just for beggars. Here he goes, as to my own part, Having turned my thoughts for many years upon this important subject, again, he's a he's a uh, <clears throat> an expert, and maturely weighed the several schemes of other projectors, I've always found them grossly mistaken in the computation. It is true, a child just dropped from its dam may be supported by her milk for a solar year, with little other nourishment, and most not above the value of two shillings, which the mother may certainly get, or the value in scraps by her lawful occupation of begging. And it's exactly at one year old that I propose to provide for them in such a manner as instead of being a charge upon their parents or the parish or wanting food and raiment for the rest of their lives, they shall, on the contrary, contribute to the feeding and partly to the clothing of many thousands. 
uh, in short, he's saying the fed become the food. So the burden of having a child or the burden of the child itself instead can be completely flipped on its head and be used for um, nourishment and to buy instead of clothes to use the money to uh, buy clothing and um, other other goods that could be used from the sale of uh, children. And he's, he, he hasn't gotten it quite yet, but he's getting there. There is likewise another great advantage in my scheme. It will prevent those voluntary abortions and that hard practice of women murdering their bastard children. Alas, too frequent among us. Sacrificing the poor innocent babes, I doubt more to avoid the expense than the shame, which would move tears and pity in the most savage and humane, and inhumane breast. Uh, he then makes a some computations about the number of children. I'm going to skip that part and go on to, um, like, so he's saying how many children will this affect, uh, more or less. And then he goes on to say, for we can neither employ them in hand, handicraft or agriculture. We neither build houses, I mean, in the country, nor cultivate land. They can very seldom pick up a livelihood by stealing until they arrive at six, uh, except where they are of, of toredly parts, although I confess they learn the rudiments much earlier, during which time they can, however, be properly looked upon only as probationers, as I've been informed by a principal gentleman of the county of Cavan, who protested to me that he never knew above one or two instances under the age of six, even in a part of the kingdom so renowned for the quickest profici proficiency in that art. Uh, so basically he's saying here that they're not really doing much at one or six, and then he's going to go on to 12, um, to, to 12 that, that children in Ireland are not really, uh, they're more of a burden than they are a benefit to uh, the country and to the kingdom. That, that's what's important. <clears throat> I'm assured by our merchants that a boy or a girl before 12 years old is no salable commodity. Oh, that's salable, salable commodity. And even when they come to this age, they will not yield above three pounds or three pounds and a half a crown at most on the exchange, which cannot turn to account either to the parents or kingdom. The charge of nutriment and rags having been at least four times the value. So basically they're not worth selling. Here comes the proposal. I shall now therefore humbly propose my own thoughts, which I hope will not be liable to the least objection. <clears throat> I've been assured by a very knowing American of my acquaintance in London that a young healthy child, well nursed, is at a year old a most delicious, nourishing, and wholesome food, whether stewed, roasted, baked, or boiled, and I make no doubt that it will equally serve in a fracasse or a ragu. So there's the proposal. He wants to eat children. Uh, excuse me. He doesn't want to necessarily eat children, but he thinks children should be eaten. Uh, and then he's going to go over all the benefits for that. He does some computing. Again, um, things I'm going to skip. Then he says, always advising the mother to let them suck plentifully in the last month so as to render them plump and fat for a good table. A child, excuse me. Yeah, fat for a good table. A child will make two dishes and an entertainment for friends. And when the family dines alone, the fore or hind quarter will make a reasonable dish and seasoned with a little pepper or salt will be very good boiled on the fourth day, especially in winter. So it's very practical here. He's talking about, of course, the specifics of eating the children. Um, I grant, I'm going to skip a little more. I grant this food will be somewhat dear and therefore very proper for landlords who as who, as they have already devoured most of the parents, seem to have the best title to the children. Uh, I think that's uh, very poignant and funny that um, 
that the uh, animosity towards landlords uh, was just as prevalent back then, and that uh, he and his uh, and Swift in this satirical piece is to curry favor for the proposal is showing how it will benefit landlords. Um, <clears throat> Infants' flesh will be in season throughout the year, but more plentiful in March and a little before and after. For we are told by a grave author, an eminent, an eminent French physician, that fish being a prolific diet, there are more children born in Roman Catholic countries about nine months after Lent than at any other season. Therefore, reckoning a year after Lent, the markets will be more glutted than usual, because the number of popish infants is at least three to one in this kingdom. And therefore, and therefore, it will have one other collateral advantage by lessening the number of papists among us. Papists being a synonym for uh, Catholic. So he's saying not only will this create more food, therefore more business and sustenance for uh, the city and for the kingdom, but it will get rid of more Catholics because Catholics are outnumbering Protestants three to one. Uh, in I'm assuming uh, Dublin, I think he says, yeah, Dublin. Uh, in the city or in the country. Okay. He does some more computing here about basically showing the profit mothers would have. I'm going to skip it. What it costs to raise the child uh, by one year, clothe and feed and raise the child versus what she would uh, make by selling the child or keeping the child, I should say, uh, versus clothing and feeding it up to a year to then sell it and, and what that profit would be, which comes to eight shillings. No idea what that would be with inflation today. So uh, I thought this part was also funny. Uh, those who are more thrifty, as I must confess the times require, may flay the carcass. The skin of which artificially dressed will make admirable gloves for ladies and summer boots for fine gentlemen. So use every piece. I think if this was written today, uh, this would be a tugging at the uh, bleeding heartstrings of um, liberals kind of making a, a parallel to the Native Americans using every piece um, of the of the animal here, using every piece of the child. It's not just used for sustenance, but for gloves and boots. Uh, this is one of, I think, the most um, descriptive paragraphs uh, that's coming up uh, of the piece. As to our city of Dublin, shambles may be appointed for this purpose in the most convenient parts of it, and butchers, we may be assured, will not be wanting. Although I rather recommend buying the children alive and dressing them hot from the knife, as we do roasting pigs. Uh, so that, if if you didn't have the imagery already of how they're going to butcher the children, that really lays it out there, which is kind of, to me, feels like a lot of shock value for 1729. There's a couple long paragraphs here I'm going to skip, uh, and then we're going to move on to <clears throat> some persons of a desponding spirit are in great concern about that vast number of poor people who are aged, diseased, or maimed. And I've been desired to employ my thoughts what course may be taken to ease the nation of so grievance so grievous an encumbrance but i am not in the least pain upon the matter because it's very well known that they are every day dying and rotting by cold and famine and filth and vermin as fast as can be reasonably expected as to the young laborers they are now in, a, in as hopeful a condition they cannot get work and consequently pine away for want of nourishment to a degree that if at any time they're accidentally hired to common labor they have not strength to perform it and thus the country and themselves are happily delivered from the evils to come. Uh, he's basically saying there how shitty it is. And um, do you want these children are going to grow up anyway? If they make it to old age, they will be suffering. Um, 
rotting in the cold and famine and their own filth and vermin. And uh, before that, they won't probably be able to work uh, because they'll be too weak to do any sort of physical labor. Of course, any other labor really isn't an option for the Irish uh, at this time, it, I, I, so it, or so it seems, um, to the Irish Catholics, I should say. Okay, so here he goes over kind of a six-point plan that I will uh, address, and this really lays out each part of the proposal, some of the best arguments for it. So <clears throat> for first, as I have already observed, it would greatly lessen the number of Papists with whom we are yearly overrun, being the principal breeders of the nation, as well as our most dangerous enemies, who stay at home on purpose with the design to deliver the kingdom to the pretender, hoping to take their advantage by the absence of so many good Protestants, who have chosen rather to leave their country than to stay at home and pay tithes against their conscience to an Episcopal curate. Uh, simply gets rid of Catholics. Less, less Catholics, the better. Secondly, the poor tenants will have something valuable of their own, which by law may be made liable to distress and help to pay their landlord's rent, their corn and cattle being already seized and money a thing unknown. Uh, so I, this is one of my favorite ones. They're saying that this is an asset. Instead of a burden, a child can be an asset because you don't have anything. Uh, your landlord, um, of course, owns your property, not just the roof over your head, but uh, your food, their corn, cattle uh, also belongs to the landlord and you don't know anything uh, of money because money's unknown to you. And now if you can sell your children for, uh, for food, it uh, gives you an asset. So win-win. <clears throat> Thirdly, whereas the maintenance of 100,000 children from two years old and upward cannot be computed at less than 10 shillings a piece per annum, the nation's stock will be thereby increased 50,000 pounds per annum, besides the profit of a new dish introduced to the tables all gen gentlemen of fortune in the kingdom who have any refinement and taste and the money will circulate among ourselves the goods being entirely of our own growth and manufacture uh this one's also great because i feel like he's uh really trying to convince the upper crust of society here saying that not only will this create uh, a stronger economy more money flowing because of course um while the poor irish mothers will have an asset in selling their children. Really the whole trade, like all other trades will be run by the aristocracy uh, at, at some point um, because everything flows up to them. And also will create a new dish for the country and cuisine uh, being very important to any uh, thriving culture. So it's not just an economic benefit, but a cultural benefit. Again, really, uh, really trying to convince the, um, the aristocracy. Four. For, fourthly, the constant breeders, beside the gain of eight shillings sterling per annum, but a sale of their children will be rid of the charge of maintaining them after the first year. So it's kind of like exponential gains. Um, not only will you make money by selling it, you don't have to uh, pay to, to raise it. Fifthly, this food would likewise <clears throat> bring great custom to taverns. But the vinters will certainly be so prudent as to procure the best recipes for dressing it to perfection and consequently have their houses frequented by all the fine gentlemen who justly value themselves upon their knowledge and good eating and a skillful and a skillful cook who understands how to oblige his guests will contrive to make it as expensive as they please uh, this is kind of a trickle down idea and that um taverns where kind of ordinary people 
uh, where the ordinary people dine and drink will uh, get a stimulus. This will kind of be like stimulating the, this so-called middle-class um, economy. <coughs> and if you're a smart tavern owner, um, you can really make a buck here because you can contrive to make it as expensive as you please. It's a new cuisine and um, there will be a lot of demand for it. And sixthly, this is my favorite. <laughs> this one's, this would be a great inducement to marriage, which all wise nations have either encouraged by rewards or enforced by laws and penalties. It would increase the care and tenderness of mothers toward their children when they were sure of a settlement for life to the poor babes, provided in some sort by the public through their annual profit instead of expense. I, I want to stop there real quick. I I love this. I love this six point because I feel like this whole. Let me see if this is. Yeah, this whole time, it's so it's written in such a expert, um, like not like not not really. It's totally economic with a little bit of culture there with the cuisine. It's about stimulating the economy, how the rich will benefit, how the poor will benefit, but all economically. Um, and here it, he gets more to the domestic side of things and how this will encourage marriage because instead of having a burden having children it'll make people want to have children so it'll be like starting a small business together um and uh right here uh the poor bit providing some sort by the public so uh, this is a community uh, the community works together to have children and sell children and eat children to their annual profit instead of expense um, I'll continue. We should see an honest emulation among the married women. <clears throat> Which of them could bring the fattest child to the market? I, I can already see. Like I, I, I could just imagine uh, booths set up in the dirty uh, market in, in wherever the market areas of Dublin, and just women, big, big voluptuous women, um, big-breasted <laughs> women plopping their fat children onto uh, the table and maybe there's like a scale or something. I guess, yeah, scales definitely existed back then. Um, and I, I could just see that being a, a, a side a satirical piece uh, to this. Maybe I'll write that. Uh, men would become as fond of, oh, this one's great. Men would become as fond of their wives during the time of their pregnancy as they are now of their mares in full, their cows and calf, their sows when they're ready to farrow, nor offer to beat or kick them as is too frequent a, pra a practice for fear of a miscarriage. Hey, uh, less domestic violence. Just th this just keeps getting better uh, because um, the uh, wife will be carrying an asset instead of a burden. The husband will be less likely to beat the shit out of her and causing a miscarriage. Uh, so just so many um, benefits. Uh, I'll read some more benefits here. He doesn't he doesn't continue uh, with the enumerated ones, but many other advantages might be enumerated. <clears throat> For instance, the addition of some thousand carcasses and our exportation of barrel beef, the propagation of swine's flesh, an improvement in the art of making good bacon, so much wanted among us by the great destruction of pigs too frequent at our tables, which are no way comparable in taste or magnificent magnificence to a well-grown fat yearling child, which roasted whole will make a considerable figure at a Lord Mayor's feast or any other public entertainment. But this and many others I omit, being studious of brevity. Uh, basically saying I could go on, but for brevity's sake, I'm not going to. Um, 
He says, I can think of one of no one, I can think of no one objection that will possibly be raised against this proposal unless it should be urged that the number of people will be thereby much lessened in the kingdom. Uh, so he's basically saying you cannot argue with this. Uh, this is in largely an inarguable proposal. Uh, the only one being that we're going to have less people. Um, he goes on here. I, I'm going to skip. I think I'm going to skip a lot of this uh, for my own brevity's sake and go on to the final two paragraphs. Um, after all, I'm not so violently bent upon my own opinion as to reject any offer proposed by wise men, which shall be found equally innocent, cheap, easy, and effectual. So basically, if you can find something uh, as, as cumulatively beneficial as this proposal, I'm not opposed to it, but it needs to, you know, this is, this is innocent, cheap, easy, and effective. But before something of that kind will be advanced in contradiction to my scheme and offering a better and offering a better, I desire the author or authors would please maturely to consider two points. First, as things now stand, how they will be able to find food and raiment for an hundred thousand useless mouths and backs. And secondly, there being around million around million of creatures in human figure throughout this kingdom whose whole subsistence put into a common stock leave them in debt two millions of pounds sterling, adding those who are beggars by profession to the bulk of farmers, cottagers, and laborers with their wives and children who are beggars in effect. I desire those politicians who dislike my overture and may perhaps be so bold as to attempt an answer that they will first ask the parents of these mortals whether they would not at this day think it a great and a great happiness to have been sold for food at a year old in the manner I prescribe, and thereby have avoided such a perpetual scene of misfortunes as they have since gone through by the oppression of landlords, the impossibility of paying rent without money or trade, the want of common sustenance with neither house nor clothes to cover them from the inclemencies of the weather, and the most inevitable prospect of entailing the like or greater miseries upon their breed forever. That is uh, the most... Um, scathing part of of a modest proposal because this is where he lays out basically saying he, he's speaking to both those he's trying to convince here and um the the poor of ireland of dublin who he, he's saying why wouldn't you be rather sold at one year of age to be food instead of go through these the, all these horrible misfortunes um that is the reality of, of Ireland at this time. Um, basically, you're better off being food. Uh, lastly, he ends with, with a nice witticism. I profess in the sincerity of my heart that I have not the least personal interest in endeavoring to promote this necessary work, having no other motive than the public good of my country by advancing our trade, providing for infants, relieving the poor, and giving some pleasure to the rich. I have no children by which I can propose to get a single penny the youngest being nine years old, and my wife past childbearing. Uh, so he's saying that he's being complete, completely philanthropic here, um, just trying to do a public good. He will not personally benefit from this because children, uh, children are too old, and his wife is also too old. Um, I uh, really loved that. I kind of remembered that from school. Um, I don't know what made me think of it. I, I, I heard it in passing. I forget if it was on a podcast or I read it, and then... Uh, I think it was on a podcast, and then I uh, printed it out and read it, and I, I absolutely love it. Uh, it's a must-read. Um, I think for I, I think for any writer, uh, that is uh, peak 
uh, satire, um, which I want to get into the two styles of satire. Well, there's like three, but I'm only going to talk about two. And I want to sound like a dictionary here. So um, I just want to touch on the two most common ones, which are Horatian and Juvenalian. Horatian being a uh, more introspective and funny and um, a less scathing form of satire. Uh, Alexander Pope's the rape, of, the rape of the Lock is an example of this. I don't really know what that is. Uh, that's what kept coming up for an example of Horatian. Uh, I think a more contemporary type uh, is, is SNL. It's usually, you know, impersonations, um, touching on contemporary issues. But again, it's cable television. Uh, at least for most sensibilities, it's really not going very far but it still will use satire to make its point. The latter being Juvenalian, that's what Amat's proposal is. It's more pointed, it's darker, it's an attack of a system, of a government, of a person. Animal Farm is another example of this. Uh, uh, some of my favorite examples of, of satire, I did mostly novels here, but there's some movies too. So American Psycho, um, that would be Juvenalian. Uh, also, I think one of the misconceptions of satire is that has to be funny, uh, even witty funny. And I, I don't think American Psycho does that at all. Um, it's still satire. It's obviously satiring the like finance culture of the 1980s, the greed of the 1980s and, and early 90s, um, an obsession with name brands where you're eating dinner, uh, while also I think the best one of my favorite memes that's come out of American Psycho is when, um, oh, I'm blanking on his name right now, but uh, the main character, I'm very upset, I'm blanking on his name, but he's going on about how you have to support the ACLU and you have to help the starving children of whatever country that is and the civil rights of a certain country and um, all these things you have to fix and you have to help the poor and minorities and gay people and all these things. And meanwhile, like, you know, as the viewer that he's this horrible, uh, this horrible evil monster um, and everyone kind of nods and, and smiles at that while they're eating in a very fancy restaurant in suits and they're all putting down their very heavy credit cards to split the um, $100, hundreds of dollar bill. Uh, Starship Troopers is another great example of satire. Now, what I love about Starship Troopers is that the movie is satire. The book is very much not. I don't think a lot of people realize that. The, the book is very much a pro-militarism kind of, I guess you would say now, trad cat book, uh, service for citizenship, uh, might makes right, um, discipline, um, and all of those those values are upheld as legitimate and, and core values of uh of a person, of a citizen, uh, of a country or, or an empire, a federation, there's the Galactic Federation, or, or is it the World Federation? I forget. But the movie very much is a satire and it's a satire on militarism. Um, there's a reason that they make Neil Patrick Harris's character in that kind of upper brass. Um, they look like Nazis. Um, the ridiculousness of the mobile infantry shooting at these bugs with machine guns uh, while they're being literally ripped to ripped to shreds 
um, just kind of the absurdity of it all. The uh, I think the most obvious parts of the movie that are satire are kind of the jingoist um, recruitment videos or commercials um, that would you like to know more and then um, you know do your duty or, or, or whatever it is I'm not I can't remember exactly but like how, how do you you know how do you support the Federation other ones are a Confederacy of Dunces Catch-22 Holes Choke by Planiuk or Palinuk uh, it can't happen here uh, which is one of my favorites, even though I think it is, is is based on Huey Long, who I think is one of the best political figures of our of our country, um, controversial or not, as controversial as that is. I'm a big fan of Huey Long. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn uh, and Animal Farm. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn being probably the most censored of these. I mean, some of these would never be in, in schools anyway, like American Psycho, a book that even I had to put down at times it became so graphic um, and, I, and that usually doesn't bother me but i had to say sometimes all right that that's enough for now <clears throat> the eventual blair finn really strictly based on the n-word that's used i remember reading in school it was weird um but the point is to show the evils of slavery um it's it's satirizing the the south the slave trade um and it's so the message is supposed to be good, but uh, it is usually um, one of the most censored books in, in the American school system. So I bring this up really because of, well, I've wanted to talk about satire for a while. Uh, I write satirical pieces. Uh, sometimes I can't help it. I tend to be, you know, I don't think satire and sarcasm are the same thing. Um, spoofing and a lampooning and all these things that are very similar um, they can all somewhat be synonymous but I, I do think satire has a certain wit to it and a um and you know i i, I think satire tends to be a little bit above i like to believe uh, a little a little more effort put in um, but again that's probably not true and i do want to talk about it and I, the last piece i want to read it's called The End of Satire, which was a New York Times article, um, and how satire is changing, and could it be dangerous? I think you know my view on that. Um, but more recently, the Babylon Bee was suspended on Twitter. Babylon Bee is kind of like, to put it lazily, I guess it's like a conservative The Onion. Um, I suppose The Onion is liberal. I, I don't really follow it anymore. I don't really remember. Uh, I don't think that they're very like both sidesism. The Babylon Bee very much is more ideological. Uh, I think their job has become much easier with how uh, crazy liberals and and people on the left can be. Again, a side that I, I associate with and, and a lot on a lot of issues, but in terms of the art and free speech culture, um, some of these wedge issues, I just find. Um, really disturbing. So they were suspended for saying something that would be considered not very nice. And they tweeted, this was back in March, um, that Rachel Levine, who is, what is she? U.S. Assistant Secretary for Health, at the U.S. Department of Health, who is a trans woman, 
um, the tweet that she was the man of the year because she had been awarded <laughs> woman of the year. This is the big issue now. This is the kind of untouchable, I don't want to get into that term, but that this is the untouchable uh, issue of, I, I guess, like social media, uh, especially meme culture. I've even spoken to people who are generally open to discussing anything, but they'll say, I don't want to talk about the transgender issue. What that means, what transgender issue means, I don't know exactly. I think most people have fairly nuanced views about it, um, but nuance is not fun. It doesn't get the base going. So they're suspended for 12 hours if they um, removed the tweet which they refuse to do, which I respect, whether I agree with them or not. Uh, I don't think, so I do think Twitter uh, Twitter has, or representatives of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, and um, I remember on that, on that Rogan episode with Tim Poole, Jack Dorsey, and his lawyer, I forget her name. Um, they're saying that's a neutral site. They have these uh, neutral rules that they applied to everyone, which is just like objectively untrue. Um, and as you, you know, ISIS, ISIS accounts will be up, Al Qaeda accounts, um, other sorts of uh, racist or sexist accounts will stay up, uh, even when they tweet really horrific things, whether it's or Antifa groups calling for violence. It seems very one sided, doesn't mean that left wing. Groups are never uh, censored. Uh, they definitely are. Not that Al-Qaeda and ISIS are left-wing at all, but um, in the victimization pyramid, uh, even, uh, you know, th th it seems like they, they get uh, more leeway because of the victimization pyramid um, where Muslims tend to be higher than uh, other groups. And um, the, I'm sorry, come here, buddy. <clears throat> and the uh, Babylon B uh, will get suspended. A, gr a group like the Babylon B will get suspended, which is known for being satire. I'll get into that um, because they're talking about the most, I would say, of the of all protected classes, they're the most protected class. Uh, I, I would say, you know, even other people uh, in these intersectional pretzels you could be many things. You could have many uh, boxes checked. If it's, if it's not transgender and you say something critical of transgenderism, um, you're, you're pilloried. So again, here, this to me seems especially egregious because this is a public figure. Uh, Rachel Levine, Levine is a, you know, she works for the government. She, uh, she won this major award. She has a, 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 a big role in the US government, she's a public figure, and to say something as simple as, you know, man of the year, I, I don't I don't really get it. I, I, I know that a lot of people would be really disagree with me on this. Um, it doesn't mean it's nice. It doesn't mean it's, you know, an okay thing to, to say in terms of like, um, being, yeah, being nice. But 
to 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 suspend a group for hate speech by misgendering them um that is that is political that's not neutral um because here with this whole thing it's like well what when when does it become when do you become a woman when do you become a man those those are questions that are worth asking um and if and anyone could say you know well you you called me this and i'm actually this and then is that person suspended um do you have to know and then how would twitter know that you know that you're misgendering on person they know here because the babylon b is satire so uh and so they expect you to know who this person is uh what if they didn't have a picture of of, of rachel levine um i don't know this is a very sticky issue uh but this forbes article i mean no i should i should who's this peter suchiu i don't know who that is um you know rightfully points out that it had the opposite reaction so this didn't have a lot of traction when it first happened the the post the man of the year post um and they say if twitter's goal had been to remove the harmful content it backfired spectacularly the original tweet which, which was posted on march 15th had largely flown under the radar yet when news that the parody site site's account was suspended the tweet suddenly went viral um it's called the streisand effect which we talked about a lot on the show um let's see and because once something's posted you know everyone's it's going to exist forever it's going to be screenshotted it doesn't go away and if anything you just give more power to the person saying it uh the right reaction would be to you know say something about the babylon bay make fun of them in fact they make fun of themselves because they get criticized for only going after transgender people which is just not true i, I follow the babylon bay they go after everyone uh and uh, and they they make fun of, they uh poke fun at themselves saying it has just one joke um it said Babylon B writer struggling to come up with new material. That's what Twitter bans one of their two jokes. <clears throat> so I, I think, and this is tough for a lot of people to accept, but um, I think if you, if you make fun of people uh, and, and, and you treat them like everyone else, which it was what the, uh, was what the, goal was the goal used to be you know treat treat everyone like you want to be treated treat um whether people are gay or a different race different nationality different religion you know treat them how you want to be treated and if the babylon b would throw a hissy fit and try and get people canceled for lack of a better term for ripping on them well then yeah they'd be hypocrites of course but i doubt they would um, I'm sure they would welcome any sort of, uh, of jockeying. And I, I think that's the route to go because the more you treat and, and people of these quote unquote protected classes, you know, people will tell you this. Say, I don't want to be infantilized. Um, you can make fun of me just like you may, you know, there's some topics that maybe might be a, a little much. Certain people maybe shouldn't make that joke, but that, you know, the response would be, to make a joke at their expense. Um, 
it's not to to censor it because that's just gonna give more power to the person who's who's making the the joke or the claim. Um, I, I really think that that's what we're seeing with the uh, with the trans community. Uh, and I know if you saw Dave Chappelle's uh, controversial special on that, that that you know there's that backlash against him, which ended up failing spectacularly. But in that, there was the trans friend who said, you know, who was herself a comedian and liked being a part of the community and then ragging on herself and ragging on other people and the same getting to her. And she just wanted to be treated like everyone else and to um, suspend something so simple as, as, you know, changing one word that, you know, this wasn't a threat of violence. This wasn't doxing. Um, you know, targeted harassment is going to be a tough argument to make when you're a public figure. This wasn't some private trans citizen. Uh, this is a public figure of the U.S. government. And to, uh, you know, protect them from from a, a, a meme or from a satirical post is because it's mean. I mean, mean, horrible things were said about Barack Obama and, and George Bush and, um, you know, lesser, I, I, those are presidents, but lesser people in the government, uh, it, it's, I, I don't think you're doing um, trans people any any favors by treating them like children, because uh, they're not children. They're, they're, a lot of them have actually been through a lot. Um, they're already uh, different in the vast majority of spaces. And um, I, I don't think that they need you to protect them. Um, I, think, I think they're capable of, of, of protecting themselves. Maybe that's too, Maybe that's too blunt. Maybe that's insensitive. I, I don't know. I could hear, I would hear arguments to the contrary. I'm, I'm happy to it. Someone want to come on and tell me why this is a suspendable offense. Uh, hate speech is protected speech in this country. The argument always Twitter. Yes, private company. I understand that. But then what, what, what kind of slope do you want to go down? Um, and I, and I think this is one of the areas where Twitter and social media um, really, really drops the ball a lot. So moving on from that, uh, I want to lastly discuss the end of satire, uh, which is funny because this was written in 2019. This is Justin E.H. Smith. It says, Mr. Smith is a philosophy professor and author. Um, I really did like a lot of what Professor Smith had to say here. There's one paragraph I just don't really get, though. I think he answers his own question. But he comes out swinging, which I appreciate. Uh, basically defending Charlie Hebdo during the 2015 um, slayings of cartoonists in the street, which really, even even at some of my most uh, progressive, and I wasn't really at that time, it would be like the next year or two, um, but even then I would consider myself just kind of a liberal Democrat. I found this abhorrent. I could not believe that people were in a way defending the slayings or explaining why they happened, but not in a well, this is what they think sort of way, but this is what they think, and this is why you shouldn't uh, make these cartoons, which is just absolutely insane to me. Um, again, kind of the same concept of, um, you know, they're going to make fun of everyone. Charlie Hebdo does make fun of everyone by uh, uprising, um, but by having so much kind of ardor against the Muslim Muhammad cartoons, you're just giving more power to them because it's getting a rise. They're, they're satirists. That's the point. Uh, 
if, if the Catholics were constantly doing that, which Charlie Hebdo makes a lot of Pope jokes, um, I've read some of their stuff, uh, that would, they would probably keep it up. Um, they'd lean into it even harder. So by um, not just getting the uh, Muslims upset, but by getting, um, you know, bleeding heart liberals upset with it, it, it just gives them a reason to do it, uh, do it more. It gives them a, a, a telos. So because the telos of the satirists is to, is to uh, bring light to injustices and um, sacred cows, to, to eat sacred cows, um, and to make people think differently and, and pose questions, uh, and, and to do that by not just doing it, by impersonation, by caricature, um, and, all, and all these different, by wit. So, He says here, satire is a species of humor that works through impersonation, taking on voices of others, um, saying the sort of things they would say using one's own, own using one's own voice while not speaking in one's own name. It's not surprising that this craft is so often misunderstood. So when satirists do their job convincingly, when they get too close to their target, it's easy to hear them not just as the characters of the views expressed in the satire, but as defenders of these views as well. It is as much it, excuse me, it is at such moments that critics like to exclaim that a satirist has gone too far. It would be more correct to say that satirist has only done his job too well. Great paragraph. Uh, I always say good satire, satire that you don't have to explain. Um, I, I do want to know that there have been a couple instances where um, I think the Serbian president, I thought the Gambian president also had, had cited the Onion during some sort of press conference. Uh, I did look it up. I, so the S Serbian president did. It didn't seem like that. It was like something about window washers dying every day in the U.S. or something like that. Some kind of anodyne. Um, although the Gambian president did also. Uh, in my in more personal, more personal experience, I saw some. You know, someone I follow on Facebook, a Facebook friend, I should say. Um, a, a, let's say an older woman. Uh, probably a boomer, I guess it would be a boomer, uh, shared the, it was the Babylon Bee, and it was after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And whatever that thing was called that Ruth Bader Ginsburg used to wear uh, around her neck, that white, I don't know, doily looking thing, a kind of collar. Uh, it had a bunch of NBA players, and it was like LeBron, and a bunch of NBA players sitting on the bench with that, uh, clearly, you know, and, and in solidarity, but clearly not true. I'm just kind of, kind of talking about the or, or, or um, poking fun at the uh, biased ideologies of the NBA and how political it's become. I saw this person, you know, sharing it and saying, "Now, you know, now, now this is progress" or something like that. I think that's what she said, and I didn't have the, I didn't have the guts to tell her that it was fake. It was also kind of fun. Okay. Um, you know, Mr. Professor Smith here says that basically new technologies are making uh, this more confusing, making satire more confusing and potentially dangerous. He uses the D word. Uh, he actually calls it toxic disinformation. Um, and here he actually also cites, oh, here he also cites the, 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 onion, being, the onion being cited by a foreign government, which was the Chinese government. Uh, where they cited the 2002 Onion, Onion article that said Congress threatens to leave D.C. unless new capital is built. 
The target here obviously being obviously with the petulant professional sports teams holding American municipalities at ransom by <clears throat> threatening to leave if they do not get a greater share of local taxes. This was lost, however, on the editors of the Beijing Evening News, who took the story as a straightforward sign of the decline of American democracy. I can recall my smirking attitude when the same Chinese new newspaper acknowledged soon after that had been fooled, um, soon after that had been fooled. Uh, some small American newspapers, the, pa the paper chided, frequently fabricate offbeat news to trick people into noticing them with the aim of making money. Uh, hey, you know what? At least they acknowledged it. I don't think papers, even this one, the New York Times, uh, would even acknowledge if that happened now. Again, this was 2019, and that was back in 2002. Uh, these, these, these cathedral uh, media, they get shit wrong all the time. If they do make a correction, it's in a footnote. It's barely, you know, the damage has been done. Um, and sometimes they, they don't even seem to bother. Okay. Um, he talks about how, uh, you know, more satire has gone, uh, has started coming from um, anonymous sources. One, I think this is part of social media. It's fun to be anonymous because you don't have to deal with um, any personal repercussions, which you shouldn't have to anyway. So my note here is, well, do you like, because he, he thinks he, he cites uh, pre, you know, no, previously really popular a satirical shows like the, Col the, the Colbert Report and Saturday Night Live, which to me have become so bland and boring and establishment um, because they can't be as subversive or they can be, but only towards one side or at certain targets, uh, that anon like real satire has to come from anonymous sources or else you get doxxed or threatened, um, or whatever, you know, wh whatever repercussions there should be for, for speech that shouldn't have those repercussions outside of criticism is fine, but, um, it's gone beyond that as people trying to get other people fired. Uh, I think there's always been a little of that, but it's gotten to the point where it's so easy to just uh, email a company, an employer, uh, because someone says something uh, that is uh, verboten. And um, that's why people have to go anonymous to make really true, uh, funny satire or witty satire. So that's my response to him there. Um, this is one of my favorites too. In early 2018, <clears throat> the Twitter account known as Pixelated Boat offered what it claimed was an, ex an excerpt from Michael Wolff's recently published Trump expose, Fire and Fury. Uh, it was related that upon arriving at the White House, the new president complained that, <laughs> that the television options there did not include what he called the Guerrilla Channel. So the staff began transmitting guerrilla documentaries from a makeshift tower outside his window until he complained that these were boring, that the, sorry, that the guerrillas were not fighting enough. So they edited the documentaries down to the fight scenes, <laughs> at which point the president was appeased, was appeased and knelt in front of the TV from morning until night. Uh, it's funny because it feel, like it sounds like something that Trump would actually do, uh, which is what's great about satire. And here he says, this was excellent satire, just believable enough to be entertained as true. I myself believed it for about five minutes. And I was indignant when I realized I'd been fooled. I thought of the stick stiff functionaries in Beijing who had also reacted poorly to getting played. I realized they were right. Uh, I, I love that, that <laughs> just imagining Trump 
uh, just be, being so upset that one, he didn't get the, the gorilla channel, whatever the fuck that is. And two, that the girls were not fighting enough and demanding that this frazzled staff could find him, edit down the uh, gorilla channel. It's just fight scenes. Then him just kind of sitting there going, good, good, as the, uh, as the gorillas fight each other to death. I don't know. I love that imagery. And that's, again, really great satire. Um, so, uh, what then? And so I really love this piece up until, and I, and I did just start following Mr. Professor Smith. I want to see where he is now. This is 2019. People have made huge shifts since 2019. I can't imagine this being published in the New York times in 2019. Um, I hope I, I did a cursory glance at his timeline. He seems like he's kind of stuck to the same, um, viewpoints uh, concerning free speech doesn't seem like he went uh, hard you know QAnon uh, conspiracy theory doesn't look like he went kind of establishment resistance blue wave democrat crit craziness um so that's good uh what he does say here though does kind of bother me um i'll read the paragraph uh, over the past few years, I've been made to see in some that the nature and extent of satire is not nearly as simple a question as I had previously imagined. I'm now prepared to agree that some varieties of expression that may have some claim to being satire should indeed be prohibited. Hate that. I note this not with a plan or proposal for where or how such a prohibition might be enforced, but to acknowledge something I did not fully understand until I experienced it firsthand that even the most cherished and firmly held values or ideals can change when the world in which those values were first formed changes. No, I hate this. I hate where he's going with this. He says that some of this is not good. I have no plan or proposal for how to fix it or how anyone should fix it or even begin to fix it, but I just think it's bad. The world has changed. That's not, I completely disagree with that. Um, my note here is so dot, 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 what? Then he kind of answers his question here. I hate to have to say this, and I feel that while it is an admission necessitated by the changing times, it also could not come at a worse time. The madness of 2015 has not subsided. That's an understatement. An astounding article in the British newspaper, The Independent in February, Sean O'Grady attempted to stoke the, the decades-old fatwa against Salman Rushdie for his satirical take on the life of Muhammad in the satanic verses. Rushdie's silly childish book, the columnist writes, should be banned under today's anti-hate legislation. It's no better than racist graffiti on a bus stop. O'Grady proudly admits that he has never read the book. And in and in this, he just like and in this, he's just like the Ayatollah Khomeini before him. Um, so that seems to have answered his question. Do you know how you can stop some of the speech that you should be that should be prohibited? Anti-hate legislation, which does things like bans novels, bans books, bans youtube videos and, and it would ban or does and you know this that's the uk of course not not here um but it bans art and uh the theme one of the constant themes of this show is that you're not the free speech the first amendment and the concept and i always like just saying the first amendment because uh the first amendment is to protect you know from government censorship all that but the the the, the principle of the first amendment is to protect speech that you don't like Right, because one day the speech that you like could be the speech that the, those in power don't like, and you have to protect that principle, protect that value. So, 
a way to stop that in a country that doesn't have free speech laws like we do, like the UK, is to have anti-hate legislation, which will, uh, of course, devolve into banning a novel um, by a uh, one of the most, I guess, um, laureled, I don't know if that's a verb um, or adjective, uh, writers of our time, one of the, one of the most um, well-known and beautiful writers of our time. Um, uh, let's see. Is my own belated acknowledgement of the need to regulate satire and unwitting discovery of common cause with the likes of O'Grady? I certainly hope not. Well, it fucking is, dude. O'Grady belongs to what seems to be an increasingly common species of moral coward, a dupe of totalitarians, spiritual brother of the Charlie Hebdo assassins. I'm not going to lie. That's pretty strong language, and I love it, but uh, <laughs> that's pretty strong language. Whereas I'm only trying to respond to the real threats of hitherto unimagined technologies. Always love when you can put hitherto into a sentence. The satanic verses, I tell myself, is literature, where free play of the imagination is the rule of the game and the inalienable right of the creator. Twitter is, well, something else. No, I disagree there. Again, we can't all write. As much as I would personally love to, as someone who writes novels, we cannot all write like Salman Rushdie. We don't have the resources. Well, we don't have the skill. Uh, we don't have the resources to, to put out books like that. Um, and, and to, I guess you'd say, to have them spread, like a, like a, like Salman Rushdie book does. Um, we don't have the time, not everyone has the time to, to write novels, to address a certain uh, viewpoint or to criticize something or to satirize something. Um, and some people, for the vast majority of people, all they have is Twitter to, to put out their uh, viewpoint. And if that's in the form of satire. Um, so I don't think that it should be left just to the uh, gatekeepers or like you shouldn't be gatekeeping who gets to be satirical and who doesn't, uh, whether that satire is in a crude meme that you find um, reprehensible or whether it's in a 400 page novel about a, uh, one of the most, if not the most dangerous topics to criticize uh, the prophet Muhammad. So, um, you know, here I'm on, like, I, I, I appreciate this article by, by, by professor Smith. I think a lot of it is, um, I think he's, I agree with him on, on the vast majority of, of it. I think he just goes too far. He answers his own question. And then he sounds a little too kind of gatekeepy and elitist for me there at the end uh, where uh, he, he makes the distinction between, um, the obvious, of course, distinction between uh, a, a novel, like Satanic Verses, and Twitter. Um, instead of just saying, well, they should both be protected. Uh, you know, you could put, I have read the satanic verses. I have it on my bookshelf. Um, you could distill any novel into a tweet. Um, so is that not protected just because it's not written with in flowery prose? Uh, it's not, it's not written beautifully uh, over 300, 400 pages um, or because it's 280 characters. I think that's what Twitter is now. Um, no, it's wrong. They both have to be protected. And um, I think that's it. And that's all I have for today. My voice is getting a little sore. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, again, this is the uh, takeover of the Reckless Muse, excuse me, the Reckless Muse cast, episode 40. Um, I'm Ben D'Alessio. Find me at bendalessio.com. Find uh, my work and Joe's work and other contributors at, on uh, the Reckless Muse Medium page where I have short stories, movie, uh, movie reviews, um, satirical pieces, political pieces, uh, all sorts of things, and find uh, 
<coughs> my co-host Joe's work there also. Uh, please remember to uh, stay reckless and fight the crits. Thanks, everyone.